Tonight, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter number one. Acts chapter one. Jumping back into our Sunday evening series on discernment as it relates to the local church and the worship that takes place within the local church. Tonight, I want us to examine the popular unbiblical practice of purposely dividing the church. The title I've given my sermon this evening is, Is Christ's Church to be Divided or United? Is Christ's Church to be Divided or United? If I could give a subtitle, it would be, Why Are We Dividing Christ's Church. And in the time we have together, I want us to consider first the biblical practices and teachings of New Testament Christianity, second, the unbiblical practices and teachings that we have come to accept in the 21st century, and then in my third point, I want to give you four main reasons regarding why I believe we have come to accept the unbiblical ideas and practices that encourage factions among Christ's body. And because I want the truth of God to trump man's opinion on this matter, I'm going to have you turn to several places in the Bible by way of confirming my point from Scripture. So beginning with our first point, let me begin by firmly establishing from the teachings of the New Testament what local churches in the first century practiced and taught regarding church unity. And beginning with the birth of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, as we look to the birth of the church in Jerusalem, I want you to notice the repetitive emphasis of the togetherness of God's people in worship, in doctrine, in fellowship, and in service. And because of time, I'm going to do my best to simply point out the truth that I'm seeking to establish and refrain from giving an in-depth commentary on every portion of Scripture that we will look at tonight. So Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, namely Jesus and his disciples, The church that Jesus had established was together. And being assembled together with them, commanded them, plural, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they... Therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, 
Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye, you all, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye together shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now let's recap for a moment. After Jesus rose from the dead, before he would ascend back to heaven, for 40 days Jesus spoke to his church of things pertaining the kingdom of God. And verse 4 makes it clear that they, Jesus and his disciples, the first church, were assembled together. And when Jesus ascended back to heaven, they went to Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem, they went together up into an upper room. And they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, not with just themselves, but with other believers. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were not segmented in different rooms based on personal preferences. They were together with one accord in one place, harmoniously praying to the Lord. And most of you are familiar with the account of Pentecost. When Peter lifted up his voice to preach in the power of the Spirit, to people of differing nations, speaking different languages, God miraculously caused the apostles to speak gospel truths in languages others spoke. And notice the unity here. The multitudes came together as one, but they were separated by the languages that they spoke. And God caused there to be a blessed unity around the gospel. It's the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Looking to verse 41, notice what we read. After Peter 
preached, once the Spirit of God fell. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord, there's that phrase again, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with singleness and gladness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So what I want you to recognize here in chapter number two is this. The same words and phrases that are emphasized in Acts chapter 1 are emphasized in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The same words and phrases that were used to solidify what the church did before Pentecost are the same words that solidify what the church did after Pentecost. What are the words? They together one accord. They together one accord. Stay with me. We're only getting started. Look over to the next chapter. Acts chapter 3, verse number 1. Acts chapter 3, verse number 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour, which, by the way, other believers were there meeting for prayer in the temple. And you know the story of Peter and John here. Their going to the temple to pray together leads to Peter and John healing the lame man, and this healing then leads to Peter and John being threatened not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. And after this threatening, it leads to Peter and John being beaten, which then leads to their release. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Notice it now. When there was persecution toward church leaders, what did the church do? Acts 4, 23. And being let go, they went to their own company. They went to the other apostles and Christians and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they together heard that, they, the other apostles and Christians, lifted their voice to God with one accord. And said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to do. And now, Lord, 
This is their prayer meeting. This is their heart in one accord, crying out to the Lord. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they, not just Peter, not just John, but grant unto your servants who are crying out to you now in one accord, grant with boldness that they might speak your word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. Notice it. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Are you beginning to see the repetitive theme of church life that is being established through the book of Acts. God's people were unified in the gospel, which means they were unified in the faith. They were together in learning. They were together in the apostles' doctrine. They were together in fellowship. They were together in the breaking of bread. They were together in hearing the needs of others. And they were together in distributing their possessions and goods to those who had need. They were together in worship. They were together in prayer. They were together in experiencing God's blessings. They were together in service. They were together in bearing one another's burdens. They were together. They were united. They were of one accord. We do not read that the apostles had a church unto themselves, nor do we read that the laymen of the church had a church unto themselves. We do not read that the Jewish people had a Jewish church that met at 9 o'clock and the Gentile people had a heathen church that met at 10 o'clock. Uh, we, we find nothing of children being separated from the adults so that they can have their own experience. We do not see any hint of division over music, the older people wanting a conservative service and the younger people wanting a contemporary service. On the contrary, what we find is togetherness among God's people. Togetherness in the faith, whether they be male or female, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, young or old, educated and educated, those who have been in the faith for years and those who have just come to faith in Christ. This is the theme of Acts. Acts chapter 1. If you missed it there, Acts chapter 2. If you missed it there, Acts chapter 3. If you missed it there, Acts chapter 4 and onward. And for those who would say, well, pastor, the practices of the church in Jerusalem is a unique, singular instance that eventually faded away. Turn over to the next book, the book of Romans, chapter 15. Humor me for a little bit as I walk you through these instances in the New Testament. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1. Paul says to the church in Rome, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. 
For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be of one mind, that ye may with one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this theme again. Paul is assuming through his exhortations in this letter that the weak and the strong are assembled together. There's not a weak church and a strong church. He's assuming that they, the weak and the strong, will see one another Lord's Day by Lord's Day among the assembly of the saints, and he's assuming then that they will know one another. He's assuming that they will strive to do their best to love one another as Christ has loved them. So he continues, verse 7 of Romans 15, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Verse 30, Now I beseech you, brethren, plural, you all, brethren, together, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you, ye, you all, together, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. There's the theme, togetherness, unity, being of one accord. Next chapter, chapter 16, Romans 16. In Romans 16, we find Paul greeting those among the church that have been a great asset to his ministry. They have been a great blessing to his heart over the years. And in your reading of the 16th chapter of Romans, you will notice that Paul does not say, Paul does not say, greet Phoebe, the leader of the women's society that meets on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. He does not say, greet the children's church pastor meeting downstairs in room two. He does not say, greet Bone Crusher, the motorcycle ministry coordinator. Greet Tina, the young mom's pastor. Greet Gary, the single dad's pastor. No, Paul is assuming that the church in Rome is together in doctrine, in fellowship, in worship, in prayer, and in service. Now keep in mind that the epistles that were written to local churches were written to one church body that were assembled together for worship. These letters were read to the congregation in their gathering. Now let's look at a few more examples. If you will, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember what I said last week. If God says something once, we ought to pay attention to it. If God says something twice, we really ought to pay attention to it. If God should repeat himself over and over and over, we ought to thoroughly comprehend what he's trying to get through our puny little heads. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 13. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that you all profess the same truths, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, that you would be united in fellowship, doctrine, worship, prayer, 
and service. Why? For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions, there are divisions, there are disagreements, there are buried groups among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Or was Paul crucified for you, rather? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. Now, what's the obvious truth? The obvious truth here is that God, through Paul, is rebuking the church for dividing itself by favorite ministers. They were not functioning as one accord. They wanted to divide themselves based on their personal preferences, based on their favorite preacher. Well, I like Paul. I'm going to wear Paul's jersey. Well, I like Peter. I'm going to wear Peter's jersey. Well, I like Cephas. I'm going to go to Cephas's Sunday school class. I don't want to go to Paul's Sunday school class. He's too theological. I like Peter. He preaches things that are dumbed down. I like Peter. He's entertaining. He's got the foot-shaped mouth. He doesn't think before he says half the time. I want Peter's class. Don't you dare mix me in another class. God desired unity. But here they were dividing themselves. Keep going. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 26 through 29. Let these truths be established on your hearts and mind. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one. In Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. The theme is togetherness, unity, one accord in the faith. Ephesians, next book, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through you all and in you all. The repetitive word is one, togetherness, unity, one accord. Ephesians chapter 6, two chapters later, verse number 1. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the point I want to show you from this text is that children were in the congregation with their parents as the word was taught. 
Paul addresses children. Next breath, parents. So this teaches us that children were not shoved off to another place on property, nor were they discouraged from participating in what we call, quote, big church, adult worship. Philippians chapter 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Do you have it yet? No, I forgot. What did he say? Togetherness. Unity. Being of one accord, Colossians, next book, Colossians 3, verse 15. Just a few more, Colossians 3, 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, notice the different kinds of people assembled together among the church body. Verse 18, notice them. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So question, who is assembled in the church in Colossae? Wives, husbands, children, fathers, servants, and masters. Wait, servants and masters met together in one place to worship God? Yes, sometimes. When both were brought to faith in Christ, there was unity in the gospel. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, last text we'll look at. Titus chapter 2. I could do this all night, but somebody might fall out of the window. We don't want that. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But speak thou the things, Titus, in your pastoral ministry, as you speak the word, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. All right, you survived the marathon of texts. Question, how can this be done 
if we divide the church up by ages or life experiences? How can what Paul is telling Timothy to do be done if we separate the women by 50 and plus in this class, worshiping the Lord over here, and under 50 over here? You can't do it. And I could keep going on in this first point, showing you example after example of God's intention for the church to be united in worship, teaching, fellowship, prayer, and service. But I think, I hope you get my point. In every church mentioned in Scripture, togetherness is the theme. God approves of His church being united and together. God disapproves of His church being divided into groups over personal preferences. And by the way, as I showed you in my sermon on youth ministry, this same practice was the norm in Old Testament worship. This is not just a New Testament theme. This is an Old Testament theme. When the saints gathered for worship in the Old Testament, when the prophets preached the word, everyone was together singing, hearing God's word, and responding to God's word, which demonstrates that the myriads of programs, groups, and divisions that we've come to accept are new and not old. You can't find divisions being pushed on the church. For thousands of years, people came together for worship as one, and then guess what? They went back home to live for Christ in their homes, shepherding their family, and that was their focus. We come together as one on the Lord's Day. We scatter together throughout the world, being a light, ministering in our homes. We come together, scatter into the world, ministering in our homes, coming together as one. So what I'm hoping you will recognize in this first point is the truth that church togetherness is not a gray area practice. It's not one of those things where Scripture is silent the truth is in your face constantly. The biblical practice, teaching, and expectation was for Christians among a church to be united, not divided. The expectation is that the church would know one another, that the church knows its members. You've been here for 40 years? I've been here for 40 years. We only have 50 people in our church. The expectation is that the pastor knows the sheep and the sheep know the pastor. The practice of the New Testament is not, is not separating into a thousand different subgroups based on social wants or needs or enjoyable desires. This is point number one. Togetherness is the theme of Scripture. Togetherness is the theme of the New Testament church. Now in my second point, I want to briefly comment on the unbiblical practices and teachings that we've come to accept over the past several decades. So having looked at the biblical manner of the church, the question that I now have is, why? Why are most churches knowingly doing and wholeheartedly encouraging the exact opposite of what the Bible describes? Why do we have churches and church ministries that are based on someone's skin color, race, age, social status, social preference, and music preference. Come on, don't shy away from me now. Where is the biblical support for an all-black church? 
Where is the biblical support for an all-white church? Where is the biblical support for having a Filipino ministry or a Spanish ministry when the Filipinos and the Spanish speakers can speak English? You say, does that happen? Happens all the time. We just want to be with our people. Oh, we also speak English. We can be over in the English service, but we like to eat lumpia and pancit after the service. So we're going to have our own Filipino ministry. We're going to divide ourselves by our nationality. Where is the notion, if you've been down in the Midwest, in the South, where is the notion of cowboy church in the Bible? Where's children's church? Where's the youth group? Where's the youth pastor? How about the pressing need, as we are told, to have one service for those who like contemporary rock and roll Christian music and those who just like the old boring hymns that grandma like? I mean, there are many churches that give the option for worshipers to go to blended worship or modern worship. Used to be like the restaurants, smoking or non-smoking. I'm old enough to remember that. Do you want fog machines and strobe lights with a dark auditorium? Or would you actually like to see who you're looking at sitting next to you? Why do we have so many segregated ministries in the church? I joked about it in my sermon on youth ministries, but where does this madness end? Come on, where does it end? Should we have senior citizens church? If you're 60 and older, sorry. You've got to be in another place. You've got to have another pastor, someone who can relate to you. Should we have military churches that separate themselves by their branches? Marines, room one. Army, room two. Coast Guard, room three. Navy, room four. And don't you dare... Oh, I forgot the Air Force. Air Force, sorry. Room five. And don't you dare intermix those classes because you can't... You certainly can't relate to one another. I mean... Obviously, you chose your group to belong to, so you can't know what life's about outside your little group. Should we have a broken home church with a broken home pastor? Should we have a Greek-speaking church for those who like to study Greek? Should we have a sports church for sports enthusiasts? Should we divide the church by coffee preferences? Hey, there we go. Caffeinated on this side, non-caffeinated on this side, Tea drinkers, back fellowship hall, you can watch on TV. I mean, what's wrong with you? You don't like coffee? Are you heathen or something? And what we'll do, those who prefer to read the King James in the front, those who prefer the ESV on the back. Uh, those who are hard-nosed, pre-millennials, pre-millennialists, they can wear a yellow bracelet when they come in. Those who are all millennials can wear a blue bracelet. You see what... what where does this end? If, you're, if you start thinking about it for a while, you will see how looney tune we've become. We've redefined the biblical meaning of church, ecclesia, ecclesia, a called out assembly of baptized believers worshiping as one. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we dividing Christ's church when Christ desires his church to be unified together as one? Why? And the more appropriate question is where? Where did this come from? Well, in my third point, I want to answer this question by giving you four suggestions. Why are we doing what the Bible encourages us not to do 
in regards to dividing Christ's church into various groups? Well, I believe the first reason stems from our ignorance of the Bible, our ignorance of the Bible. I believe there are many well-meaning Christians who've come to a saving knowledge of Christ who started attending a church that encourages such groups and divisions. And so, naturally, that's all they know about Christianity. Uh, They're still learning what the Bible says. They haven't really thought about these truths. They've not been confronted with such things by a pastor. So people innocently think, they innocently think that this is how church is to be. They innocently think that they, can't, they certainly can't have church without a youth group with a cool, hip youth pastor with slick hair. They can't. Uh, they can't imagine church without a program or group that meets them where they are in life. Why? Well, they have a sincere zeal for God, but not according to Bible knowledge. And in many ways, this was me when I first came to faith in Christ. When I came to faith in Christ and started rubbing shoulders with various churches and colleges and fellowships, I didn't know certain things. I never took the time to think about it. I was never challenged. So I did what most people do. I just went with the flow. So I think some churches start doing all these things merely out of ignorance, out of tradition. They just follow suit, assuming that everything is right and biblical. So the first reason why we've come to accept divided church is due to our own biblical ignorance. And then tied in with this first point is point number two, which is pragmatism. Pragmatism. So we're asking the question, why do churches divide itself by race, skin color, social status, social preferences, music preferences, and entertaining programs? The answer is because it works. Because that's what people like and that's what people want. That's what people are comfortable with. And we know this to be true because we've surveyed the community and they've told us what they want in a church. They want a college and career ministry. They want to dump their kids off somewhere that is fun. They want a single and ready-to-mingle ministry. They want a basketball club. They want a computer geek ministry. They want a pickleball group. They want a church that functions as if they are still stuck in the 1970s. Do you see the motive behind all this division? The motive is not, what does God want? What is most biblical? What do others need? But what do others desire? What will get people to come to church and what will get people to stay in church? The name of the game is pragmatism. Pragmatism has turned the church into functioning like a business. Pragmatism has turned the church into a social club. Pragmatism has turned the church into a place where people's main purpose for coming is physical and social, not spiritual. Let me just clarify under this point that we are not called to do what works. We are called to do what God says. We are called to do what is most biblical. We are not called to give people what they want. We are called to give people what they need. And what they need is a church that's defined by the Bible. 
They need someone to confront them with what God says. They need to know that the church is trying to be biblical, not trendy. And by the way, what you win people with in a church is what you will keep them with. If you win them by coffee and donuts, you will have to keep them by coffee and donuts. And the moment coffee and donuts are gone, you're going to lose half the people. If that's your main thing, if that's your main draw. If you win others by fun programs, you need to keep those fun programs going so people will come. John chapter 6. Jesus fed the multitudes. Then he started preaching doctrine. People got offended and left. The disciples approached Christ. Don't you know you just offended a bunch of people? Shouldn't you just run after them and throw your arms? I'm sorry, here's some more bread. He turned to his disciples and said, will you also go away? Are you just here for the physical things? For the social things? Or are you here for the spiritual things? What did they say? You have the words. No, we believe you are the Christ. You have the words of life. We're here for the spiritual. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is why we have all these things. The second reason why we see all this weirdness in churches as it relates to promoting division over unity is due to pragmatism. First, ignorance. Second, pragmatism. Third is pride. Pride. Why have we divided Christ's church into various divisions when they cannot be supported by Scripture? Because we think we know better than God. We think we have to help God get people to come to church. We do. We've convinced ourselves that God's methods of evangelizing the lost and strengthening the individual believer has changed over time and is outdated. We think that what worked 2,000 years ago in churches certainly can't work in 2024 because things are different. People have changed. People don't like preaching. They don't like to be confronted by a pastor. They don't like to sit next to others in a pew. They don't want to intermingle with people who cannot relate to them on a social level. People want people like them. That's our natural tendency. Help me out. People want small groups. They want to sit around a table and drink coffee and stuff their face with donuts, learning God's word in a non-confrontational way. So in our pride, we've said to ourselves, God is wrong and we are right. God's ways are boring. Man's ways are fun. God's ways are out of touch with reality. Man's ways are in touch with reality. And this is nothing but unbelief. Unbelief in the sufficiency of the Scriptures, which is nothing more than pride. Did God really say that? Does He really mean what He says in all these texts? Pride. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. And then the fourth obvious reason that churches divide over these things is Satan. Satan. First is what? Ignorance. Second? Pride? Was it? There you go. Pragmatism. Third? Pride. And then boiling it all down? We battle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. The thief cometh not for, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. God loves unity, which means that Satan 
loves disunity. God loves togetherness. Satan loves division. God wants others to honor his word. Satan wants others to doubt, question, and disobey his word. Satan wants Christians to remain ignorant. Satan wants Christians to be pragmatic rather than biblical. Satan wants Christians to walk in pride. So why are so many churches dividing itself in worship and fellowship and prayer and service? Because that's exactly what the enemy wants. And he's oh so subtle. This is not just in-your-face worldly churches. This is among, quote, conservative churches. Let's just cut and divide Christ's church so nobody can know each other. And there's all these divisions in place. Ignorance, pragmatism, pride, Satan. The Bible teaches unity. The Bible teaches togetherness. The Bible teaches a being of one accord in worship, prayer, fellowship, and service. So now, let me clarify, lest I'm taken out of context, lest I'm misunderstood, let me conclude my sermon by giving a few clarifying statements on this topic, and I'll give them in the form of questions and answers. Question number one, Pastor, are you saying that there cannot be a time and a place for certain ministries or gatherings among the church? Are you saying that all group Get-togethers, such as kids' ministries, women's ministries, senior ministries, single ministries, are sinful? Answer, no. I'm saying we need to get back to the biblical model. I'm saying we need to re-examine why we are doing what we are doing, and we need to examine what the repercussions of them are. I'm saying that we do a great disservice to God's Word. We do a great disservice to Christ's church and to the sanctification of God's people when we emphasize divisions over unity. We've been trained. Listen, we've been trained to think divided groups are necessary and divided groups are biblical when they are not. So I'm calling on Christians. What I'm doing is calling on Christians to think about what the Bible says and how God intends His church to be. We have to get back to the Bible. We say we are Bible people. Let's get back to the Bible. Let God be true and every man a liar. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's blessing. Are you saying that there cannot be time and a place for certain ministries to gather? No. I'm calling on us to get back to the biblical model. Question number two, Pastor, isn't this issue just a matter of personal preference? Are you not making a big deal out of nothing? Well, I hope I've shown you from the Scripture that the answer is no. There's not a hint of divided groups and assemblies worshiping, segregated on the same property. This is about striving to be biblical. It's a matter of striving to be discerning. Remember what biblical discernment is? Sinclair Ferguson says, True discernment means not only distinguishing the right from the wrong, it means distinguishing the primary from the secondary, it means distinguishing between the good and the better, and even between the better and the best. Biblical discernment is asking not only what's wrong with this, but it's also asking what's right with this. Is it the best? Is it the most helpful? Is it the most profitable thing? Is it the most God-honoring thing? 
So no, I don't believe this is a small issue. I don't believe this is my personal preference. As I've shown you in the text over and over, God's way is togetherness, unity, being of one accord. Question number three, well, what are we to think about Sunday school classes? What are we to think about Sunday school classes? Well, that's easy. Sunday school is an extra program added to the gathering. It is not something that is a replacement for the gathered worship of God's people. We gather together Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Sunday school is a supplement, not a substitution. Sunday school is a bonus. It's not an alternative for unified worship. And the same is true for baby showers. The ladies get together. The men want nothing to do with it. The ladies get together and they have baby showers together. Praise the Lord. You can have that. We don't want co-ed baby showers, okay? We're not against you. Take our money, buy gifts, but just go, right? There are various get-togethers that happen throughout the week, naturally. That's okay. That's wonderful. These are supplements, not a substitution. My problem is where people neglect the Lord's day, they neglect the Lord's church, but they like the fun programs that the church can give throughout the week. They like the steak dinners. They like the breakfasts. They like the lunches. But, oh, church, church life? No, that's not for me. Now, obviously, if God is drawing... People aren't in Christ yet. God might use something like that. But if God's people are truly in Christ, they ought to be faithful to the church. That's just Bible. Question number four. Well, what are big churches supposed to do? Great question. I'm glad you asked that. What are big churches supposed to do? By big church, we mean the, those with memberships of thousands. How are they supposed to strive to be together as one? How can they fellowship with one another? How do they worship together? How can they pray together without dividing themselves into subgroups? Again, the answer is very simple. Here it is. If you're taking notes, write this down. Church planting. Divide and conquer. That's the division that God is for. This is biblical division God approves of. Divide and conquer. Sending a group of people with a pastor into the next town over rather than driving an hour or two to the big church with the big name. Nobody's preaching this. I'll preach it. What do I have to lose? Here's the solution for big church. Multi-ministry. Don't let the church get big enough to cause such a problem. Stop building kingdoms around men and celebrity pastors. When the church reaches 100 in membership, it, start, it needs to start thinking. Is there a church in the next town over people are coming from? I'm serious. If God should add to our church, maybe plant a church in Morongo. Maybe start thinking about building another church in 29 Palms. Landers. Joshua Tree. Desert Hot Springs. This is the problem with, quote, megachurches who have multiple morning services to accommodate their large membership. I hate to say it, but much of the time, the pastoral staff likes the fact that their church is big. And the people want to be a part of something that is big, grand, flashy, great, and esteemed in the eyes of men. They do. They want to belong to that place where their pastor is a TV pastor. 
Their pastor is an author of many books, which inevitably leads to people saying, well, I'm a pastor so-and-so. I won't name any names, but you can think of some. I'm a pastor so-and-so. I'm a pastor so-and-so. Listen, this doesn't help. This is actually against the biblical way. What needs to happen is when it reaches so many people, they need to start praying about starting a church in the next town rather than gathering from various communities. Rather than having a pastoral staff of 50 where the pastors can't get to know everyone, send a group out so that they can practice the one another's rather than being lost in a crowd. That's exactly what happens with these mega churches. I've heard it over and over. I'm just lost in a crowd. Sadly, most pastors, most big-name pastors, won't even consider this because they like the numbers. They like the success. It doesn't help God's people. It doesn't help the unity of the church. I've seen it. I've gone to the big churches, and you can see the impossibility of getting to know others. And other, half of them are just visitors out of town because they've heard this pastor on the internet and they want to just experience it. Like, well, who's a member here? The need, the need then is for these mega churches to divide the church into small groups where people start becoming cliquish and then they only fellowship with them. So going back to Scripture, let's go back to Scripture. While the church in Jerusalem had 3,000 saved at once the day of Pentecost. It was big for a while. Take note of this. I have no reason to believe that they remained a mega church throughout the decades. Why? Because God didn't allow it. Acts chapter 8. God sent persecution, and through that persecution, people were scattered. You just start wondering why. Maybe it was because of this. God wanted people to be united, to know each other, to help each other, so they were divided to the various communities that they scattered to preaching the name of Christ. God had scattered them by persecution so that they can be together as one. So here's another sacred cow on our series of church discernment that few want to think about Few want to discuss, but we have to think about it. We have to discuss it. We need to examine it by the teachings and the practices of God's Word. So my question is, why are we dividing the church? We should be encouraging others to be united around Christ and His Word, not dividing itself around Christ. We should be encouraging others to be connected with the whole body, not just part of the body and the part of the body that they like the best. Let me close with the words of John, Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us, 
to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Do you know what heaven will be like? Worshiping the Lord as one. One body. One church. There are no segments in heaven. There are no segments in the New Jerusalem. So why are there segments in Christ's church now? 